Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Who's starting? <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome back to Conspira Normal. I'm Rob here with your host, Adam Sane. That's me. Mr. Luke is joining us. Whoop, whoop. Mr. Lucas Reed. Oh, God, it's two weeks in a row. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? It's amazing. I just I feel like a bad friend to some of my other friends, so I'm just trying to like even it out. Oh, man. Well, we appreciate you doing that. <laughs> You're just using Conspira Normal to do that with us. Uh, so... I understand that you went to see the uh, Grateful Dead last night. No, I mean, I did not go to Chicago to see Grateful Dead, but I did watch it on a projector in the backyard of a hippie's house. You watch it on the projector of a backyard? Yeah. We we all had... Was this, a, like the, was this like, it's like the 50th year reunion of the Grateful yeah, Dead yeah. or something like that? It was so boring. I'm sorry to all you fans out there, but it was so boring. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 15 minutes of... Yeah, usually usually Nicole's parties are awesome. They're all hype and everyone's uh, just really lively and everything. And this time, everyone's got their chairs gathered around yeah, the projector yeah. screen to watch these old white-haired dudes. All <laughs> he he had like a little maze of a drum set, and he was like getting up from his main drum set chair and then walking into his little maze and playing all his different <laughs> drums. So did you uh, did you get slipped anything in your drink or anything like that? Uh, I kept I kept my beer right LSD next to LSD or BZ too. Uh, I don't think those guys would would do something like that. I hope not. Anyway, right? <laughs> hey, I get I get offered uh, acid and whatever they have acid cherries. 
Yeah, acid peanut butter chip sandwiches, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, whatever they come up with. <laughs> Hi- hip- hippies are an ingenuitous type. I don't even think that's a word. <laughs> like you come up with new words, I think, just about every show you're on. So <laughs> it's like Jewish radicals. And <laughs> Jew- there are Jewish radicals. I swear to God. <laughs> Yeah, Rob, you you missed that one. He described our he described our uh, last guest as a Jewish radical. I don't even know where it came from. It's a Jewish radical. <laughs> but you also uh, you also had the chance to see uh, see coat hanger abortion. Yeah, I mean that one I was a lot more excited for. <laughs> That's music right there. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of music is coat hanger abortion? Uh, uh, <laughs> It is as as I found out they're actually from my hometown, which is Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's right. It's crazy. There's, there's a bunch of good metal bands from Chattanooga, man. What was the name of the uh, the band that you said Diarrhea? What? Oh, Diarrhea Planet. Diarrhea Planet. We talking about good band names. Yeah, we talking about terrible band names <laughs> before you got here. It sounds like something Murderface would have from like his little side band from. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Metalocalypse. Oh, okay. <laughs> Murder face. Is that the drummer? <laughs> no, that's the bassist. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know their names. So Diarrhea Planet. Well, we're getting really we're getting started out on a good note here. But anyway, I guess it's better than the last serious show that we had. Yeah, too too serious. When it gets too serious, I go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're going to talk to some serious stuff tonight because we're going to have uh, Nick Redford on just back on the show. Word. And we're going to talk about his book, uh, Secret History, and about conspiracies and cover-ups, and we're going to talk about some some secret ancient history as well, so looking looking really forward to that. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so anything uh, on your mind there, Rob? Oh, From the uh, anything that has happened in the last few weeks, <clears throat> all the, the, the gay marriage being... Uh, being well, my legalized. Girlfriend, my girlfriend's excited anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I don't care so much about any of it either way. Really? <laughs> no. He's about like me. I just like yeah. Shrug, shrug my shoulders. Oh, that's great. I'm more interested in the the, uh, the TPP or whatever the name of that bill. That yeah. What's what's going on with that? Because you know, what? I think I'm one of those distracted about. Americans that has been distracted by the Charleston shooting and the gay marriage stuff. So what's going on with the the, well, the trade bill? <laughs> It, I guess it went through, and the way I understand it, which I'm not good with politics, so I probably don't understand it, but the president now has complete control over all trade agreements, mm-hmm. and there's a band of 12 countries which um, <clears throat> have joined together for uh, a free trade agreement, and there's all these like uh, limitations and, and bullshit or whatever. Everyone has to comply with the same kind of... Yeah. What were some of the, what were some of the countries? Do you remember what some of the countries were? Is it uh, is it primarily in like the Western Hemisphere? Or? Yeah, well, it was, it was like the U.S., Canada, Mexico. Okay, two or three countries I'd never even heard of, and then a couple little random European countries, I think. Well, like we already have NAFTA for Canada, United States, and Mexico. Right. It seems like kind of like a expansion of that, but it gives way too much power to corporations and the president and kind yeah. of offsets the checks and balances yeah. that you know our country needs to. So let me ask you, do you think that there's a possibility that uh, we could have just been really distracted this oh, week totally. as this thing 
this thing passed. There's right? no way that the whole that the Confederate flag, the um, gay marriage rights, and that all happened in the same week. There's just yeah. no no way. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the Supreme Court thing had been going on for a while. They've been debating it for a while. So it made a little sense that they would probably do it before, make some kind of decision before the July 4th holidays. But, yeah, the Confederate flag thing has been just ridiculous. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, it's I, all, it's all, man, it's all over Facebook. I have mm. all my memorabilia, so. I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got your Confederate flag Speedo. <laughs> <laughs> I wear that every time I go to the pool, too. <laughs> One of our friends, uh, that's actually a good friend of the show, posted something on his Facebook about how he didn't agree with the Confederate flag. And, and Luke's one response was a picture of him <laughs> with uh, two bo- two birds up in the air and w- in his Confederate flag Speedo in a pool. Uh, I thought the Confederate flag Speedo was a joke. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. no he, he has it. <laughs> you want to see a picture of it? Of course. Yeah, he's, <laughs> this, is, this makes really good radio there, there Luke. <laughs> We, you should, we should post that picture up in the front the of this sexy hunk of southern pride. It's okay. I'll describe it to everybody. <laughs> sexy hunk of southern pride. But anyway, nice. all all over Facebook, man. It's just been it's been Confederate flag this, Confederate flag that. And, you know, I'm mixed up on it a little bit because, well. You know, I have an ancestor that fought in the Civil War on the Confederate side. You know, so I have some of that, you know, her- pride of my heritage, my Southern mm-hmm. heritage. Uh, at the same time, you know, the Confederate flag really got appropriated by racist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, a lot of the uh, Confederate flag being on some of the flags in the South, like uh used to be on the flag of Georgia. Um it still is on the flag of Mississippi, and there were a couple of others that it was appropriated for, was mostly as a reaction to civil rights back in the 50s. So we're kind of mixed on it, but I don't think that it should just be banned. No, no, and these should these, ever be these companies that are coming out like Amazon and Walmart <laughs> that have been just removing the yeah. Yeah, confederate they're, flag they're all about sales and that's all they yeah. care about is, is having saving good face with the uh clients clientele well you know have. apple today apparently they've been removing games that are civil war themed like those little you know stupid little games that you can play on your phone yeah, because yeah. they show us a confederate flag well doesn't that make sense in the context of... yeah let's just erase history while we're at it. yeah exactly well you know that's that's exactly what that's the what we're uh, working on yeah well, that's exactly what, you know, Stalin did in the Soviet Union, right? I mean, he, they just, any time that someone would fall out of favor in the Communist Party, he, they would erase them out of existence. There's a good picture, uh, of Stalin and three other guys. And as each one of those people fell out of favor in the party or they were purged or executed, they were airbrushed out of the picture until at the very <laughs> end of the picture, it's just Stalin. Because he killed all the rest of them and erased them out of existence. So that's what this kind of stuff reminds me of. And, you know, there's other people out there that have gone so far as to even say that the American flag should be taken down because it represents racism and it represents, you, you, you know, how far do we take this kind of stuff? Are yeah. we going to, you, 
You, you know, and everybody's making fun of stuff on Facebook, and and uh, maybe we should just replace it with the rainbow flag, I guess. <laughs> everybody, everybody can just feel inclusive. Makes everyone happy. Because <laughs> then you're knocking out two birds with one stone. You mm-hmm. make the hippies happy, and you make the LGBT community happy. Right. Every, every Everybody will be happy. No one will be offended. Like, uh, <laughs> there was a school in California, I think University of California at Irvine. They actually were going to pull the Confederate flag... Not the Confederate flag, but the United States flag, off of the off of the school flying at the school because it said that it was offensive. <laughs> Unbelievable, you know, just like how how, how far do, and everybody's all offended about everything. Well, your uh, your plaid shorts are kind of pissing me off right now, man. <laughs> You okay, know, man. They, I'll, I'll go. I'll go remove them and just like wear just like plain drab clothes. Yeah, How about that? those look like they're. Your your decapitated shirt is is uh, <laughs> is offending me. <laughs> you know those shorts. Uh, the late '90s called man. They want their shorts back. <laughs> hey, man. You know these 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 are direct from Walmart. These are direct from 2011. No boundaries. Yeah. All right. Back on topic though. You're always good for that, Luke. <laughs> well, I say, is there anything else you want to add, Rob, about any of that stuff? No, I think Luke? we covered it. Nope. Nope. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get to Nick Refer. Let's get to the interview, and uh, we'll be back on the flip side on Conspiranormal. <sighs> wiki, wiki. We're back on Conspiranormal. It's your host Adam Sane, and of course, got Rob here and Mister Lukey mm-hmm. sitting in, and. We have a return guest to Conspiranormal, Normal, and that's uh, Mr. Nick Redfern. Uh, Nick is he's he's all over the place. He's uh, studies the field of ufology, Bigfoot, cryptozoology, all kinds of good stuff. And tonight we're going to talk about a lot of cons- we're going to talk about his book Secret History, and we're going to talk about a lot of conspiracy. We're going to talk a lot of like kind of like ancient mysteries, that kind of stuff. But uh, Nick, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Normal. Well, thanks, Adam. Thanks, guys. Thank you for coming on. Uh, yeah, I'm always nice to be on the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, when you, I want to talk about before we get into secret history. I want to talk about the Roswell slides, yeah. and you have done, like, as I said before, you've done some amazing work on this. Um, I know there's a lot of people that have been involved with it as well, but. I kind of want to go over what the Roswell slides are purported to be and then kind of this revealing of what they actually probably are. Right. Well, the, in concise terms, they purport to show an alien. In reality, they're a fiasco. <laughs> that sort of sums it up in, um, in sort of short terms. But uh, in terms of the bigger story, yeah, basically the story goes back to 2012 thereabouts um, when rumors started to circulate that what became known as the so-called dream team uh, people who'd looked into the Roswell case like Tom Carey and Don Schmidt um, was it that long they, ago was it really 2012 that this has been going oh, on yeah it started yeah actually when it all kicked off yeah that's how long wow. it's been going that's how long it's been dragging on for I should say yeah, rather than going yeah. and um, the the, the story, as they often do in ufology, you know, there's always this determination to keep it quiet, but somebody blabs and the story starts to surface a little bit. And the sort of whispers of 
what the account was, was that somebody back in the 40s had photographed in sort of a covert fashion what was supposedly a dead alien body. Uh, it was assumed to be from the Roswell crash because of the geographical lo- location of where the alleged photographer worked. Yeah. Um, and and it was certainly really intriguing to start with. It, you know, we were told it showed a small body and it was laid out on some... Well, actually, it started out where the inference was it was laid out on the ground at a crash site. Then it changed to, like, the back of an army truck. Then it was laid out on a green army blanket. Um, and then it was... I even heard about it being in, containing some, some sort of, like, um, airtight tank or something like that. So it repeatedly changed. and um, yeah. But it was interesting. <laughs> Um, because, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I still am someone who believes something very weird happened at Roswell. So it's not impossible that if something strange did happen at Roswell, regardless of what it was, then maybe one day the smoking gun will surface and maybe this could have been it. You know, that was the thoughts that were going through people's minds at the time. Right. And uh, it developed further to where we got the name of the photographers, a uh, couple named... Um, Bernard and Hilda Ray. They lived um, in Midland, Texas. Um, Bernard Ray, his place of work actually covered, ironically, the town of Roswell. Um, and so that's why people thought, wow, this could really be it. And of course, questions were asked as well, how on earth could civilians, you know, sneak into some classified lab and photograph this body? Um, yeah. As time went on, um, more and more data came out about the raise, about how she was um, a well-respected attorney. Um, he was a geologist, and you know, one of the stories was, well, he, perhaps he was out working, you know, saw something near the crash site, etc., etc. Um, and but as time went on, you know, we got more and more data. But the problem was that it sort of flew, uh, threw up a few red flags here and there, and it was very much, well, I think this and I think that until. May the 5th, um, when there was this big event in Mexico. And now I should stress, before before the uh, Mexico event occurred, um, a a low-res image, one of the images of this body, was essentially leaked out or revealed, depending on which way you look at it. And it did show a strange-looking body, which did look admittedly odd, but it was very low-res and small. Now, at the May the 5th event... um, which was really sort of trumpeted up to be, you know, the, the big disclosure. You're finally going to see an alien body, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's when we got to see a high-res image for the first time. And unlike, unlike the low one, um, the high-res picture really looked pretty disappointing. It did look like a, sort of a, you know, a, a mummy of a child, which is what the other theory was. Um, yeah. There was no getting away from that's what it looked like. More damning was the fact that there was a placard in front of it, um, which only took like 72 hours max to decipher. You know, it's a bit blurred, but you, there are there's sort of technology you can find online which can actually de-blur, you know, um, text in, in a photograph. Nick, and, didn't they say that they went to the Pentagon and mm, all this kind of stuff, and they, they they said that no one could decipher what was on that pla- on that little card? That's what we were told. Yeah. <laughs> this is the big thing more than any other that really sort of, you know, makes me baffled and also angry that this kicked off in 2012 and it was 
it took until uh, May 2015 to rectify it. And when this high-res image surfaced, you know, it literally took hours, not days, weeks, or months, but hours to decipher the placard which said, you know, body of a two-year-old mummified boy, <laughs> but it showed where, you know, who donated it even, the, you know, the, the finder's name, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Um, now, you know, we were told, well, there was no way we were able to decipher this. But, you know... But, that just doesn't make sense because anyone, it's not like the technology that was used to decipher it is only available, available to like the Department of Defense or the NSA. You know, yeah. you can download the program yourself off, online. Yeah, and it's like a freeware program. too. Yeah, then you have to yeah, pay exactly. for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, so now, on the one hand, the team, or some of the team members said, well, we're only ever shown a low res. And if they only showed a low-res one, well, that would explain why they couldn't decipher it. But my argument in relation to that is, if, well, if you're only shown a low-res picture, you never saw the high-res, how on earth and for whatever reason would you fully endorse this as being an alien body if all you've seen is this blurry, faded image that the rest of us have seen? You know, to put your reputation on the line for a... You know, I mean, I don't know what the kilobyte amount was, but it was literally, you know, like the low kilobytes. Um, yeah. I just don't understand the mindset of people putting their entire faith on a low-res picture of what could frankly be anything. And then when it comes out as the high-res one, it suddenly all collapses. So to me, it's a big fiasco because of the way it was handled. You know, I mean, if it was me... I would not have endorsed this with, without, at the very least, seeing the high-res image. And if I saw the high-res image and there was a placard on it, I sure as hell would want to know what that said before I endorsed anything. Um, you know, it could have gone either way. I mean, if it said something like, unknown body found 70 miles from Roswell, autopsied by a doctor, whatever, that's totally different, you know. But no. that isn't what it said. And to me, it's just a black eye on ufology. It's an example of shoddy investigations, jumping to conclusions. Um, the, the, the whole, like, Fox Mulder, I want to believe aspect just, you know, taken over in terms of, you know, um, in terms of the investigation, that the whole want to believe angle just sideline the whole uncritical, unbiased approach to it. And to me, you know, I, I have no hesitation in, in calling the whole event a disaster, a fiasco, an embarrassment, a blot on ufology. Wow. You know, I go on and on <laughs> with various terms, but probably people get the point after, like, blot, fiasco, disaster. <laughs> well, I, w I want to address the, the, the whole concept of, of I want to believe, you know, and, and, and first of all, too, who were some of the people that were involved with this and yeah. were the people that really wanted to believe that this was a real thing? And do right. you believe that that was the primary motivation or was there more of an aspect of possibly fraud there? Because there's been some speculation that since they actually revealed this in Mexico City and their justification was, was that, uh, what's his name, ha Jaime Masson could be there. But since they actually unveiled this in Mexico City, then they weren't going to be... Um, subject to U.S. law, so to speak. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the main people that got involved with it uh, to start with uh, were Don Schmidt and Tom Carey, um, who were part, they're part of what's become known as the Dream Team, which is sort of a collective body of people interested in Roswell. Yeah. 
and it also included um, Kevin Randall, who wrote uh, a couple of books with Don Schmidt and done a lot of his own books as well. Um, and so, but Kevin was pretty much out the loop. Ironically, I, I got some early information on the slides, and I mentioned it online. And Kevin actually emailed me to see if we could have a chat on the phone, and he wanted me to tell him all I knew, which I didn't mind, because as one of the dream team, he'd been left out the loop. He didn't know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this was bizarre that Kevin was part of the dream team, but he had to phone me up to find out what the deal was with the slides, which was very wow. strange. Um, but the other main two were Tom Carey, as I said, and Don Schmidt. And then you also had, who was sort of working sort of alongside and staying in touch with the Dream Team, and, but doing his own investigations, uh, was Tony Bregalia. Um, but the, you know, although there were some people working together and others, you know, working on their own, etc., um, they're essentially all following the same goal and I was looking into it because I'd uncovered a few snippets of information here and there as at Rich Reynolds who runs the UFO Conjectures group or a blog excuse me and um, and so you had a lot of different people sometimes sharing bits of data here and there sometimes not um, my own personal view and I know this differs to a lot of other people on, on the whole issue of legalities and all this business I actually think the the whole issue as far as Carey and Schmidt was concerned. I think it was poorly handled. I, I, but I personally don't think they were out to con people. Right. I, think they, I think they jumped the gun and you know, took the view that this is what we, we've come to believe it is. And, the, and I think one of the reasons why they came to believe that is because, number one, as I said, uh, Bernard Ray's place of work did cover Roswell. Um, also, the I should backtrack and explain that a man named Adam Dew got hold of various old slide pictures, hundreds of old slides of the couple, uh, or from the couple. After they died, there was a yard sale, like a house sale, and um, he got hold of the slides, and some of them showed pictures of President Eisenhower in the slides. This created a rumor that the Rays actually knew Eisenhower, and yeah. as a result, you know, maybe he smuggled them in so he, they could see the bodies, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and so because, you know, there was a Roswell connection, there was an Eisenhower connection, my personal view is that Schmidt and Carey thought, wow, you know, we've got slides, we've got a strange-looking body, we've got a guy who worked near Roswell, and we've got photographs showing, you know, President Eisenhower. And ironically, even I can understand how you put all those together that you think, well, you know, maybe there actually is something here. But because you may actually think there's something here doesn't mean there is. You know, right. it's not enough to say, well, we've got a picture of Eisenhower and the guy happened to spend time working in New Mexico, Bernard Ray. And, you know, you can't just make a case based around that. And I think yeah. they, I think they jumped the gun, but I think they honestly jumped the gun. Now, that's not a defense. From my perspective... You know, it's not like in 2012, the deblurring technology wasn't around. That should have been the first step that was taken. And yeah. if it was proved to, you know, back in 2012, well, it's just a placard and it shows it's a mummy, the case could have been nipped in the bud, so to speak, within days or weeks, you know, and it would just be, oh, well, you know, ironically, it would have actually put them in a very good light if they were shown a questionable photograph and were then been able to prove that it was... Uh, actually a mummy. It would show a balanced approach to it. But 
you know, to me, they, as I said, they jumped the gun, they put all these pieces together that were admittedly interesting to start with, the Roswell angle, you know, Eisner. But then, that's not enough, you know, you've got to take it to a deeper level. Um, I think, for me, the biggest issue about the um, the Mexico thing is the issue of the people who saw, who either went there and paid to see the event or paid to watch it online. Um, you know, and we were told this was going to be the unveiling of an alien, and then with it, this was the Tuesday. By the Friday, it was pretty much all over. By the Saturday, it was definitely over. So yeah. for me, the one word, the one word that's still outstanding and that needs to be dealt with in this entire saga is refund. You know, um, I think the people who paid to go there, the <laughs> people who paid to watch it online, deserve their money back. You yeah. know, I mean, it's not like it was shown in May 2015 and then it took five years or ten years to finally resolve it. I don't think people would actually have a problem then if they'd watched it in, say, 2015 and they knew investigations were ongoing and nobody's really sure what it was, but, yeah, it's interesting, so I'll pay money just to watch it. But, but do, you, to pay, do you know how much but, they were charged? No, I, I actually don't. Uh, okay. I, I, yeah, I'd have to look that up. honestly don't. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, if... But for the fact that people paid, you know, good dollars and everything else on a Tuesday, only to find on the Saturday it's a mummy. Yeah. For me, to me, for me yeah. just, just the, um, you know, that, for me, that's, that's reason to, to provide a refund to the people. You know, regardless of whether legally they're obliged to, to me, that's irrelevant. Um, it's not a matter of whether they're obliged by law or contract or anything else to refund the money. I think it should just be a matter of conscience to refund the money. Right. It, you, some of the work that you've done on this, and, and it also, you know, I just want to make the statement that just because somebody knew Eisenhower, it's like a huge leap in logic that, uh, well, Eisenhower took him to see the dead alien. You know, to yeah, me, I mean, that's he, like that's like the, the huge one of the hugest leap of logic anybody could possibly make. Yeah, and of course, the pictures don't actually show that um, they, you know, that they knew Eisenhower because the pictures were taken on like a camp when he was on campaign trails. Right, right. So it, but, I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, I, I've yeah. had a my photograph taken, um, you know, with a few famous people over the years, but it doesn't mean I know them. Right. Or, you know, I can make a connection. I just you're in the right place at the right time, and you get a picture taken with them or whatever. So. Yeah. It, it, well, some of the work you've done on this has been that you've actually have pretty much traced it to. Well, you have a good working theory of what museum it actually was in. Well, but however, yeah. which is closed now, but. Yeah. Well, it was actually it gets a bit confusing because. Um, when I looked into this after the, or around about the time it all collapsed, I found um, a museum called the um, Millionaire Museum in White City, um, New Mexico. And this is actually not too far um, from a famous uh, set of caverns, the Carlsbad Caverns. And of course, this would have been of interest to um, Bernard Ray with his job as a geologist. And right. the, the Rays only live less than 200 miles away from the Carlsbad uh, caverns. Yeah. So, you know, it's almost certain that they would have visited there. Well, the Million Dollar Museum is um, located literally like 15 miles from the caverns. 
So, you know, the chances are they would have visited the cabins. Um, well, it so happens that the uh, Million Dollar Museum, which although is closed now, certainly back in the 40s, was home to dozens and dozens of preserved mummies, including child mummies. Um, right. And it also had a rumour associated with it that one of these child mummies was an alien. I mean, that story was told by the staff for years. Now, I actually thought that was like a closed case. But since then, documents have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act showing it was actually taken at another museum, which is equally weird because it shows that, you know, we have two different museums with strange mummified, well, not strange mummified bodies, but mummified bodies of children. But what's strange is that both museums, by default, have, have sort of become associated with crashed UFO and dead alien stories. Now, the, yeah. the Billion Dollar Museum in New Mexico, um, that story had, uh, you know, remained around circulating for years and years. Now, of course, the new one with the slides, that's a relatively new development. But, um, but it just shows how sometimes you have these sort of stranger-than-fiction things happen which lead to the situation we're in now. You know, it's almost like a unique thing like I said, not to sort of repeat myself, but it's like a unique thing where you've got the Eisenhower pictures, you've got Bernard Ray working in Roswell, you've got pictures of a small body, which were taken in the 40s, you know, the right time frame. Then we find another museum not far, far from where they lived that had mummified bodies and, and also dead alien stories attached to them. So it's almost like you, you could never imagine that all these sort of unique factors could come into play, but they did. But that doesn't take away the fact still that the people who are investigating it should have done a better job of investigating it. You know, just because yeah. you've got all these strands means nothing. Right. And I mean, that's what, that's what you know, like research journalists do or just people that just do research. I mean, that's what they do. You, you try to find the, the, like the simplest explanation first. And if it doesn't really match up, then you go for something maybe a little more complicated and you know about the museum things. I mean, there's there's so many, especially at that time period. There's so many gimmicky museums that that are out there. You know, I remember going out west when I was like ten years old and thinking jackalopes were real because there were so many of it. You know what I mean? And well, it's actually a cool place. You know, just down in Austin called the Museum of the Weird. Yeah. You know, where they've got like. Um, it's not really, but it's like a allegedly a refrigerated Bigfoot body, but uh, right, actually not right. a stomach. Uh, they, <laughs> they've got things like jackalopes and two-headed calves, and some of them are genuine, you know, um, mutated anomalies, that kind of thing. But others are just, but you know, it, it's just a cool place to visit. It's not intended to pull the wool over people's eyes or anything like that. Yeah. You know, it's just like an entertaining place to wander around. They've got like life-size replicas of the creature from the Black Lagoon and, you know, you can, like a life-size King Kong head and hand and you can stand in the hand and have oh, a photograph yeah. taken. Um, so you find these kind of things everywhere. Um, but again, I think it was the it was the sheer weirdness of all the circumstances coming together that led to the idea that this was one of the Roswell pictures. And um, I think, you know, the big tragedy out of all this is that, like I said at the beginning, I do think something weird happened at Roswell. I don't think it was a weather balloon or a mogul balloon. I don't think it was crash test dummies. Um, but this really has only damaged the investigation of Roswell. And from now on, people will think, well, if anything else comes through, 
you know, some old guy or, you know, family says, well, my grandfather told me this and he's got something hidden away. People are going to say, yeah, yeah, it's just another rerun of the, the Roswell slides. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's, that's the big disaster of all this is that it's not just a case that's been resolved, um, albeit after a few years, the very fact that some of the, you know, the more well-known names in Roswell research are the ones who, you know, were investigating it. Now it's collapsed. This will, regardless of what they say or anybody else says, it will impact on Roswell research from now on. People will definitely think, oh, well, you know, it's it's not going to come to anything. So. You see, that's what I was going to ask you, like what kind of like your final question on this is like, you know, the the damage that this is going to do to like the field of ufology and whether anybody's really going to take anything serious after this kind of, this kind of stuff happens. I mean, you already had stuff in the nineties, like the stupid, like alien autopsy video and all that crap. I think the only way people would take it seriously, and, and I would hope this is the way it gets done. I mean, let's say hypothetically, something else does surface, you know, whether a photograph from some old guy who was out of the crash site and, you know, with all the chaos going around, he snapped a couple of pictures, which which isn't impossible. You know, you've got a big chaotic crash of something. Everybody's running around like headless chickens, not knowing what it is or what the bodies are. And somebody gets a couple of pictures. It's not impossible. What I would hope, if, if that situation happens again, or somebody, you know, left the base with a batch of documents and they've hung on to, to them for 70 years and they're sort of faded and yellow and somebody's great-granddaughter's got them now, and they want to hand them over for analysis, what I would hope is that the whole thing would be kept under wraps and nobody would say anything, nobody would leak anything, and it would stay under wraps until the investigation was as complete as it could be complete. And if it came to nothing, well, you know, it's always a good idea to tell people it came to nothing and it was a hoax in case somebody else gets taken in by it. If it's proved to be the real thing, reveal everything when you've made a solid case. But until the case is solid, don't jump the gun. You know, right. and that that was the problem with the Roswell slides. The gun was jumped. Um and and that that's why it ended in disaster. You know, it could have been like a very good, solid cautionary lesson where you had Smitten uh Carey saying, Well we looked into it, we thought it was an alien, but then we deblurred it and it turned out to be you know, the yeah. black had said it was the money. Had they said that, that would have been a good lesson for you, ufology to be careful. But it, it went the wrong way. So, um, yeah. And I know, know like Richard... Ufology, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it just, it, because it backfires on everybody and it backfires on the subject, that's the big issue. So. I know Richard Dolan was, you know, he even got some flack on it too because he, he you know, I guess he, he actually went there to mm-hmm. Mexico City and he never said, you know, he knew what it was. He just said, you know, let's give it time and see what it is. And, you know, he actually got a lot of flack about that, too, that, you know, that people thought he was actually supporting uh, those guys when he really wasn't. He was just, you know, saying, let's wait and see. Well, yeah, I mean, this to me demonstrates one thing more than any other, that when you get dragged into or you allow yourself to become involved in a controversial thing like this, inevitably you become part of it and so anyone and everybody that has you know had linkages to it to a degree at least you know you become part of the problem in a lot of people's eyes and um 
that's what's happened. I mean, you know, the whole thing with Jaime Massan now, um, you know, when he was saying, he was still continuing afterwards to say, no, this is, you know, this isn't a mummified child. I mean, yeah. what else do you need? We've got the photographs of the bodies, of the body. We've got the placard. Um, we've now got like almost 200 pages from the museum um, where we know it was now taken, uh, which have been released through the Freedom of Information Act. Letters and photographs and documents from the museum and, you know, transfer of the body. We've, we've got everything. It's time to move on from claiming it's this or claiming it's that. It's not. It's a mummified child. Move right. on and learn from it and give the people the money back and, you know, let's just let's move on and remember what happened and, and not make the same mistakes again. Yeah, and I think for for me what it all says is that there's um especially in the field of, of ufology, there's people tend to call things proof that aren't proof a lot. They don't take it as objectively, I think, as maybe they should. Yeah, you you do get that a lot. I mean and unfortunately a lot of the reason it's not always done maliciously, it's because people so badly want right. the evidence or the answer that they cling on to something and they they just want this finally to be the one thing that's going to blow it open. You know, kind of like in the 80s, you had the MJ-12 documents, which people are still debating if they're the real thing or not today. Then in the 1990s, the alien autopsy film, there's still a few people who think it, it's real today as well. Um, I've no doubt that there's going to be believers in the Roswell slides 10 years from now. Um, so th the issue is... Because people, you know, I don't say you shouldn't have an emotional tie to this because to a degree you should, but also, but not to where you cross the line and, and just want to believe something because it's a cool story. Right. You know, it's like the Bob Lazar story about seeing, working on crashed and recovered sources at Area 51. But actually, a lot of people write him off, but there's actually some really interesting stuff that suggests, you know, his story is genuine. Um, but because you have legitimate arguments on both sides. Um, that's why not only is it still an open case, but it should be open. It shouldn't be, well, I believe this and somebody else believes that. It should be, well, let's all come together and pull all the, pull all the data and let's see if we can finally lay it to rest from a positive or negative perspective. But unfortunately, you know, ufology is like a boxing match. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, and sometimes it is almost literally a boxing match. Um, but that's how it is. You've got the believers, the skeptics. You've got the people who say, this is my case. Well, not literally say, but, you know, that by inference, this is my case, and I'm the one who's done the research on it, and you're the one who hasn't. And, you know, it becomes all about egos and clashes of egos and wanting to be the one with the, the first with the most. And um, yeah. And that's... You know, that's ufology, unfortunately. It's like a <laughs> circus of horrors at times. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like, it, it, it reminds me of a lot of, like, uh, I've talked about with uh, with our friend, a good friend, uh, Rocky Stucci. You know, we talked about with him on his show about how ufology reminds me of, you know, basically like the ghost hunting community. It's kind of the same way. Everybody's well, yeah, kind I mean, of looking yeah. for that fame and, you know. Yeah. Well, it's the same with, like, Bigfoot, you know, in, in the yeah. same way that community, you know, you've got people who, like me, you know, I've done a lot of Bigfoot investigations, and I think there's something 
very weird about Bigfoot that takes it beyond just an unknown ape. You know, and I've, I've written about this extensively, some of the stranger cases. And then there are other people who say, yes, it is just an ape, and they don't, you know, they don't basically want to share data. They, you know, both sides deride the other. <laughs> and, um, you know, I try not to get in the fight, not because I don't enjoy a good fight. I actually do enjoy a good fight at times. But the problem is, if all you do is debate over my theory is right, my theory is right, yours is wrong, etc., you get nothing done. I actually prefer to do the research rather right. than argue, you know, in a forum, how many bodies were found at Roswell. I think it was four. No, it was five because Colonel so-and-so said it was five. Well, I heard it was three. <laughs> you know... I've got better Arguing things over minutia. Yeah. yeah, I've got better right. things to do at night and weekends, you know, than debate. That's why I don't do much debating because I've just I like to have a normal life as well. But when I do debate, I think it's important to rationally debate with the people you might be totally at odds with. But very often they don't cross paths because they don't like confrontation. You know, I don't mind confrontation, you know, because you can actually achieve something if you really sort of get into a even a heated debate. You know, you can actually cover a lot of ground and iron things out. But people don't want things ironed out. They they want their cool, exciting stories to be continually <laughs> maintained. Let's get into secret history, Nick. Um, th this book is a compendium. This is uh, this seems to me like a, a longer book than the other ones that I've written about that that I've read by you, and what kind of like motivated you to write this book? Well, um, <laughs> excuse me, the book's published by a company called Visible Ink Press, and back in 2012 they commissioned um, or asked me and Brad Steiger if we'd be interested in doing a book on zombies, like an A to Z of zombies. And, you know, yeah. I mean, I love zombie shows. I like Walking Dead and, um, you know, Dawn right of the on. Dead and all that kind of stuff. So that was like a cool thing, like a dream come true. You know, you want to you write a book on zombies, everything from zombies in movies, TV shows, history, folklore, mythology. You know, could it really happen? What are real, what are real world viruses? That, so there's en like A to Z entries on everything from Armageddon. The Walking Dead, V for Virus, B for Bite, that kind of thing, you know. Um, now, Visible Inc. have a specific way of doing their books. They're all big books. They're all 150,000 words and 400 pages. That's the basic stipulation. And so I did the book, and um, I, um, Roger, the, Roger Janecki, who's the owner of Visible Inc., said, you know, he really enjoyed it, and people liked the book. And he said, would you be interested in doing one on, like a similar book on conspiracy theories and I said yeah and he said um, well how would you do it and what I didn't want to do was just sort of include sort of 10 chapters you know like a top 10 where it would be just the most famous conspiracies like you know the JFK assassination um, and things like that and I wanted to sort of provide the reader with a lot of conspiracy theories they might not have seen before, but particularly so where there was new in information. So I said to Roger, I said, well, how about something that instead of just covering like mind control, assassinations, you know, unsolved murders, that kind of thing, what about I go back like to the start of civilization and show how history's been uh, manipulated since then, but then sort of take it up through latter-day centuries, like who was Jack the Ripper, did Hitler survive the war, yeah. and then get up to more 
latter-day things like black helicopters, chemtrails, Area 51, and then right up to like the disappearance of MH370. And so, in other words, make it from right from the start of civilization to the present day, you know, and have instead of 10 chapters in a 400-page book, perhaps 60 chapters where they're more concise, but you provide all the new data and, you know, all the, the top theories, et cetera, and they liked it, and so that's... I wrote it the way they liked it and the way I liked it. <laughs> well, let's let, let's get into the ancient civilization stuff. I mean, this is something we've been talking about a lot on the show. We had uh, Laird Scranton on oh, yeah. about a month or so ago. We had uh, R.J. Von Bruning was on our last show. And he's written a book about uh, what he believes is kind of like an interpretation of a, of a passage from the book of Enoch about uh, an ancient civilization. But one of the things that really intrigues me and really, it's the concept, and, and and I really I hate to use the term Atlantis because I think that that's overused, but and I don't think that that's how if there was an ancient civilization that's how it was referred to. But I think it, as an archetype, I think Atlantis is more of an archetype for for yeah. many lost civilizations. But one of the things that really intrigues me is this kind of like this concept of the ancient nuclear war. Mm. That is that has always fascinated me. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting area of research, and it's sort of disturbing in the sense that it, by default, it suggests that, you know, we might go the way of people who came before us. Maybe it's just sort of the human race's fairly warlike, hostile approach to each other that we're always doomed to repeat history, you know, and whether that's the case or not, let's hope not. But, um, you know, there are, there's no doubt that regardless of whether people are proponents or debunkers or skeptics or just open-minded on this issue, there's absolutely no doubt that there's a case to be reckoned with one way or the other. You know, it needs resolving because there are enough stories out there that could push things down the path of there being previous civilizations. Now, where I differ from a lot of people who've, sort of research this area of ancient nuclear war is I don't think we're talking about anything along the lines of a worldwide civilization like ours with, you know, massive cities, skyscrapers, 747s, trucks, cars, you know, because I think even within a nuclear war, we would have seen far more left behind, you know, there being, it's like if our civilization was destroyed in a nuclear war tomorrow. Well, 10,000 yeah. years from now, there would still be actually a fair amount of, you know, even like rusted old cars, parts of those would still be around for people to see, you know, however many survivors there were. Um, so I'm more inclined to think that if somebody did achieve ancient nuclear technology, you know, far beyond before, you know, history tells us it was impossible. I mean, you could be talking tens and tens of thousands of years ago, which granted is flying in the face of accepted history and archaeology. But if it did happen, then I think we'd be talking more like localized civilizations that flourished, possibly because a lot of these stories come from India, Pakistan, the Middle East, um, some parts yes. of South America. I think we're looking at civilization, small civilization that, as I said, may have developed atomic power in those areas, possibly at the same time when in Europe and, you know, in Russia you had like um, Cro-Magnon Man and Neanderthals, you know, that it could have been going on at the same time, but radically different levels of civilization. And so the smaller ones, if they destroyed themselves, there actually would be less to find. But, 
I mean, some of the um, intriguing stories, for example, um, the one of the people who talked about this was Emmanuel Velikovsky, who wrote the sort of acclaimed book, Worlds in Collision and um, uh, Earth in Upheaval. Now, he actually talked about some particular sites um, in the Middle East where they've been found what looked like um, sort of fused glass. Um, it actually wasn't fused glass. The the closest thing we have to it in our world is what's become known as Trinitite. Now, Trinitite um, is something that was like an outgrowth of the Second World War. Um, just before the first two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, in, um, in 1945 and ended the war, um, there was a test um, bomb which exploded at a place called the Trinity Site in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And because of the sheer incredible sudden heat that is developed by an atomic bomb, it heated the sand to such a temperature that it fuses it into like a glass-type substance known as trinitite. And it's called trinitite because the site was called the Trinity Site. That's where the name comes from. And this sort of fused glass-type substance that people like Velikovsky was talking about and other researchers talking about uh, also found in um, various parts of um, southern Iraq in the 1950s. It eerily sounds just like trinitite. And, and looks like it as well. So this has given rise to the theory of sort of ancient nuclear attacks in the Middle East and you know various other uh, areas, you know, surrounding areas. And so for that reason, that's given rise to this whole scenario of people coming before us. But I mean, for me at least, certainly the most um, famous examples of this are what we can find in, for example, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, and um, also the, the uh, Bhagavad Gita, um, which is actually uh, a portion of the Mahabharata. But they talk about, you read the English translations, they talk about these sort of powerful projectiles in the sky, um, giving off, quotes an incandescent column of smoke and flame as bright as a thousand suns. It talks about like an iron, iron thunderbolt, a gigantic messenger of death, reducing everything to ashes and also these vehicles known as vimanas um, soared around the skies i mean it sounds like a top gun situation with a highly advanced aircraft of some sort loaded with nuclear weapons and it talks about how um the soldiers jumped in the water to essentially wash themselves as if yeah. possibly they knew of something of like radiation and were trying to ensure they didn't suffer from it. Um, stories about hair and fingernails falling out, falling out, you know, as if they were just, over time, the people were just you know, falling ill from radiation poisoning. That's one of the big hazards. Right. There ever is a nuclear war. You know, just because you've survived the blast doesn't mean you're not going to see what is basically the invisible fallout coming down on the ruins of, ruins of your home. You know, and within four days, you're basically coughing up blood and your entire system's breaking down and you're dead within two weeks, you know, of, of, from the radiation. So it kind of sounds like that. Now, what's intriguing is that the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita was um, a text that none other than Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, who was the brains behind the atomic bomb, he had what is really nothing less than a full-blown obsession with it. Um, right. And kind of in like a Dr. Frankenstein-type situation, Oppenheimer came to, 
regret the monster that he'd created, if you like. And um, in 1952, um, he was uh, at a seminar at Rochester University, and one of the students there said to him, um, you know, the, the three atomic bombs, the two on dropped on Japan and the one tested just earlier at the Trinity site in Alamogordo, he was asked, were they the first three atomic bombs? And he said yes, and then he paused and he said, well, in modern times, as if to say, yeah, it's the first time we exploded them, but maybe not the first time they ever were exploded. And um, he was particularly sort of troubled um, by one particular um, line that's uh, contained in the text, which was, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Yeah, the destroyer and, um, of worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he, and he actually, as I said, regretted, you know, he didn't deny that the, that the atomic bombs regretted, uh, ended the war, he didn't regret that, but he regretted what might happen now as a result with everybody starting to develop them and, you know, an arms race and that kind of thing. But there's no doubt that, you know, you can, with the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, you can put very much of like a, um, an atomic angle to this. And also, you know, the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, yeah. The biblical stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're the most two famous um, cities destroyed. But the story actually relates to also a couple more cities that were destroyed in the same situation. And, uh, you know, you have these mysterious characters, so-called angels who turned up and warned Lot and his family you know, it was essentially, you've got to get out of town now because, you know, by tomorrow it's going to be destroyed. You, you, you've got time to leave now if you leave now. And when you read, you know, if you read the biblical version, it actually doesn't sound like heavenly angels, ethereal angels coming down from the sky. It sounds like humanoids saying, hey, you know, if you want to go, now's the time to go because, you know, the destruction, the countdown's on. Um and, of course, you have the story of, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah just destroyed and this um, smoking inferno that Locke could see, you know, where everything was just flattened. And then, of course, you have um, the story of, of Lot's wife being turned to a pillar of salt. Um, you know, was that possibly some result of the blast? You know, you have a lot of stories like this where you really have to wonder, you know, are we the first or are we just one in many cycles, you know? Has there been any studies done at those sites, like say, like around that area of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is around the Dead Sea, and also um, there in the, like the Indus Valley, some yeah. of these cities? Have they ever found like any radiation? Well, yeah, there have been. Yeah, there are a few stories of like radioactive, radioactive skeletons, but some of them are sort of controversial. But the big problem with um, you know uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know the. The location is, you know, on the Dead Sea. There's no doubt about that. But it's, you know, exactly where it was and when it was. Um, you know, various right. researchers have suggested that Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, were destroyed or actually, put, you know, are now the, the, the location is now what is below the, the Dead Sea, you know, the bed of the Dead Sea. Other researchers have suggested somewhere in that area. Now, of course, one of the problems we have is the actual... Dating. I mean, we know, for example, like the Mahabharata, people are talking about a text, you know, put together sort of 6,000 BC, or at least a story going back that far. Other researchers have suggested that even if the location's the correct one, we might be talking about actually tens and tens of thousands of years 
and the story is just passed down orally by the survivors and their you know generations to follow and it gets distorted and changed so in other words it's one of the problems is not so much investigating the locations but have we actually got exactly the right place and even if we have after you know so many thousands of years what data would be left to analyze that would suggest there was an atomic attack. I mean, for example, like the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that was almost 70, well, 70 years ago now, 1945. Right. Um, but people live in Hiroshima and Nagasaki again now. So in other words, that's just 70 years and we've been able to, people have been able to move back. Now, certainly that wouldn't be the case with today's atomic weapons, some of the atomic weapons we have, the Russians and the Chinese, they're like 60 or 70 times more powerful than the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima, literally like 70 times. Imagine the blast multiplied 70 times. So, yeah, Hiroshima was a firecracker compared to what we have now. Oh, yeah. yeah that, you know, you wouldn't be moving back to there, there again in 70 years. It would be hundreds, possibly thousands of years. So my view is that when we look at these stories, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, or India, or Pakistan, or Israel, or wherever, I think these, you know, these bombs were obviously big enough to destroy a city, but I think, compared to what we have, they probably were fairly small, but for the people of that era, you know, it, it was a terrible blast, but, you know, it might have been something that could take out a small city, um, but, you know, it may have been the tenth the size of the Hiroshima bombs, but it would still be enough to flatten you know, what was around, whatever was around then. Um, so I think that's one of the issues people often forget. We expect to find a great deal of evidence because it was an atomic explosion. But really, after a period of 20,000, 30,000 years even, it sort of moots what we would find, depending right. on the size or, or lack of size of the bomb itself. Right, because it's been so long. I, yeah. I want to talk about something else, too, you know, what happened in Iraq um, in the 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 invasion and kind of like the raids that were done on the museum and yeah. possibly what they were looking for and you kind of bring in the book uh, this idea of like that they were looking for the the manna basically that it was yeah. dropped in uh, the uh, the Israelites. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, this is an interesting story. I mean, you know, the whole the whole issue of the war in Iraq is controversial enough at the best of times, you know, but. Um, you have this story about that when you know the war was going on, everything was in chaos. That um, there was this well repeated raids on what's called the National Museum of Iraq, but it's but it, you know generically it's known as the Baghdad Museum. It's actually as I said the National Museum of Iraq, and of course you know it was home to um, a massive amount of sort of priceless artifacts not just from Iraq, but from other parts of the Middle East, some of them dating back like five to 6,000 years, and certainly, you know, provide a good image of what was going on in the world of that, that particular area at the time. Um, and certainly when the museum was raided, you know, at first it looked like it was just, just chaos and anarchy and people stealing what they wanted, you know, some for the black market, maybe some they just wanted it for themselves, you know. Um, but what it came down to was just like a chaotic looting uh, that goes on sometimes, you know, when there's riots in cities. But when um, the mil U.S. military started look to look into it, what they found was that it seemed like there was actually a concerted effort and a directed and specific effort 
to focus on the uh, the lower levels, the basement parts of the museum, and to target spe uh, specific artifacts uh, for stealing. And um, that was actually um, what the U.S. military program, the project that was uh, initiated to look into this, they actually came to a conclusion that the the idea of sort of the pillaging was almost like a cover story, like a camouflage. Um, yes, it was going on, but it acted as a good cover for the operations of people who were targeting specific things. Now, as you said, one of these specific things is you know, very controversial. The idea of some sort of technology or substance that could extend the human lifespan uh, or possibly regenerate uh, cells, that kind of thing. And, you know, over the various cultures, time frames, etc., you know, you have the manna from heaven in the Bible. Um, you have the, the, the biblical stories of people like Methuselah and Noah, you know, living massively extended lifespans, which, of course, could be easily explainable. There's nothing stranger than a distortion of stories to try and make these people seem more sort of amazing and legendary than, you know, we're told they were. Or yeah. it could be the idea that there really was some sort of substance um, that could affect human lifespans. And you could find things like this. You know, you've got what's called white powder gold. You've got manna. Um, there's an Indian equivalent as well. Um, and you, when you find these all across the world, like, like ambrosia and nectar, this kind of thing, uh, amrita, um, you have to wonder if there is some truth to it. Now, certainly, a lot of research is being done in our civilization today to try and understand how and why the aging process happens in the way it does. You know, why is it that humans live to sort of 85 now? Why is it that cats live to sort of 17 or 18? You know, yeah. parrots, can, parrots can live to like 90. Crocodiles can live, you know, to 120, 130. Why is wow. it? And, um, and although, you know, we know how... Uh, genes change and we age and things like that. The whole challenge is, well, can you slow that down? Can you reverse it? Or can you literally stop the process, you know, at a certain age? And that, in theory, is what all of these ancient sort of elixirs, if you like, claim to be able to do, that they could either slow the aging process or just extend the process. And, you know, perhaps it best case scenario, you could actually choose, choose at what age you wanted to stop aging. Um, now, of course, this is all dependent on whether or not these substances actually exist. But as I said, when you can find them across all cultures and you hear, you know, from these ancient texts of people who were somehow interlinked with, quote, the gods, and the gods had massively extensive lifespans. You know, the story of the Anunnaki, for example, that's the, probably the best example, the Anunnaki, um, you know, whose activities have been sort of really populated, uh, popularized, excuse me, by people like um, Zachariah Sitchin. Um, yeah, Sitchin, talk, yeah. Yeah, who talked about them, you know, having a massively extended lifespans, extraterrestrials, and they sometimes, you know, they worked with us and... Some of the people who they had favour with, they gave them the secret or the products that allowed them to live longer. So, uh, you know, the idea that part of the invasion may have involved somebody covertly looking for these ancient technologies and artefacts, it's actually not out of the question. One reason being that um, 
under the Freedom of Information Act, the CIA, for example, has released a, a file that it has on Noah's Ark. You know, and we know the CIA was all tres- also interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, in other yeah. words, we prove that government agencies have taken an interest in the in ancient mysteries and ancient artifacts. So, so why not in relation to immortality as well? If they're going to look into the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and Noah's Ark. Luke, you've you've studied a little bit more about this than I have. We yeah, you that, feel about a, it. It's a really good point that he just made. Uh, he, he was talking about uh, the museum in Iraq being raided, the Baghdad Museum. Uh, there is actually lists on the internet that you could look at to see each like individual, because you know how they're all uh, in categories and they've all yeah. been given assigned uh, numbers and stuff like that. You can look at a list and see what's gone, but. Uh, it, it could it could even be used as a tool to maybe attract your attention to something that is uh, an esoteric interest of great esoteric interest, you know, by finding out what uh, these groups are after in the first place. Right. Well, yeah, I, know, I, think, I think you know I don't think government agencies or military agencies necessarily know the full history of of our planet, but I actually think they suspect like a lot of people, you know, in the, the sort of fields of research aspect, that there's more gone on in the past than just, you know, his, the history and archaeology tells us. And I think at some point somebody has looked into these ancient mysteries p- from the perspective of sort of, well, can we weaponize it or can we use the science and the technology? In the same way that during the Second World War, you know, that the Nazis had an entire wing that essentially traveled around in pursuit of ancient artifacts. Yeah, the Anunnabi, I think was the name of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, that, that, that was their sort of entire job to, to do this. So, um, and sometimes, you know, government agencies do sort of pursue um, bizarre mysteries. I mean, you know, we know they investigate everything like remote viewing, UFO sightings, ESP. So, why, you know, it would actually make sense, bearing in mind all that, that they would look into ancient mysteries as well, if there was something that could be learned and, and used from it. And, um, and I think that's the thing. It's not just done from the perspective of further in history. It's to see how possibly some of these mysterious ancient technologies could be used to somebody's advantage today. You, you know, it's... Um... It's it's really interesting, kind of all this these ancient uh, these ancient legends, and and one of the things that I found it's really interesting in your book, something I've actually have heard of before, and I thought it's just a cool little story, was this whole idea of the the green children, the green children of Woolpit. I, I just think that's an interest. I've always found that it's a very strange story. Mm. Yeah, the green children of Woolpit um, actually. Uh, dates from a little, uh, excuse me, from the 10th century, uh, a little village uh, called Walpit um, in the uh, south of England, excuse me, the east of England. And um, it, it's a strange story that's become sort of part of mythology and also history, and it ties in with stories like, mutated stories to things like Hansel and Gretel and Babes in the Wood and that kind of thing. But the, the basic story... Yeah, the basic story is that centuries ago, um, in this little village called Walpit in England, um, two young children suddenly arrived in the village. And 
one was a boy, one was a girl, probably, I think about 10 or 11, that was sort of the estimate. And they had this sort of slightly green-coloured skin. And um, they spoke a language that clearly wasn't English. No one could understand. Um, and the people weren't terrified, I'm afraid. They were sort of intrigued, and they, they took them in. And um, the, they eventually managed to sort of get... You know, to sort of speak to them in a way which we could understand. You know, the, the inference is that possibly it was a form of English, but a very degraded form of English, or, you know, along with, with a lot of different words as well. Um, but the story is that supposedly the two children came from a place called St. Martin's Land, which is essentially like in perpetual darkness or under a cover, and they lived on nothing but green beans, which is a strange, you know, strange <laughs> the story um, yeah. but from there it developed that um they got lost they'd been wandering around for ages and then they finally stumbled on the people of Walpit, who as i said took them in now the boy reportedly died um but the girl she lived on and over time her green colored skin faded away and um there's sort of like a little amusing part in it where it says that as the girl got healthier and, you know, her skin turned pink again. And um, it says she became rather wanton and loose in her ways with, like, the young men of the village. <laughs> and um, so, uh, you know, she was making up for lost time, I guess. <laughs> but um, but what's interesting is a lot of people have sort of um, relegated this to some sort of, like, fairy story, you know, these green children coming into the village and they lived in this almost like a spooky supernatural world which was perpetually undercover and darkness and so a lot of people just dismissed it but you can actually look at it from another way um for example there's a, a condition called hyperchromic anemia which is very rare in most people obviously um uh, but it's actually something that occurs now and again in in people who are anorexic uh, or bulimic you know they, they don't have enough minerals and you know food in the system to keep them going and what happens is that hyperchromic anemia actually affects the color of the red blood cells and the skin takes on like a greenish shade. Now, I don't believe at all, you know, that the two the green children from Walpit were anorexic deliberately. I'm sure they, they may have been just wandering around starving for months. But yeah, it would malnourished. Have yeah, yeah they would still be the same thing. It would be malnourishment, whether you're, you know, making yourself throw up or you're just not eating, or there's no food but you want to eat, it's still going to be the same um, response. And, of course, the fact that as the girl stayed in the village, obviously, you know, she'd be eating better, that she lost the green stain of her skin. That's a good indication that, you know, she was getting healthier. Um, so, although, you know, it doesn't prove anything, I actually think this is one of the a legend that probably does have a basis in truth that two starving children, um, you know, stumbled in the village. The boy died, probably, you know, his malnutrition had gone too far. She survived, you know, skin turned back to normal. But for the people back then, you know, I mean, even today, if you saw, like, two greenish-coloured kids wandering around, you wouldn't <laughs> think it was strange now, never mind then. But back then, it would yeah. be even more sort of magical and, you know, supernatural. Um, but what this also sort of gets to is the fact that there are a lot of stories 
in that same time frame of sort of what became known as wild men roaming around the UK. Not sort of Bigfoot-type creatures, but almost described as like surviving pockets of what could have been like Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon man, you know, a thousand years ago in certain, hmm. some of the massive forests in the UK and different portions of Europe. So one of the theories is what if they were you know, sort of the last straggling survivors of some isolated pocket that, against all the odds, had survived in some of the literally huge forests, you know, that existed in the UK back then before farming, you know, really took hold, etc. And the idea that, you know, maybe they were some of the last ones. And, um, you know, as things, as time was sort of fighting against them and there weren't many left, they just took it on their own to try and find somewhere else and eventually stumbled on the village. You know, maybe they were sort of unique children that were from a different lineage to, to us, you know. Isn't there someone that uh, claims descent or is said to be uh, descended from the girl? Yeah, well, actually, this story surfaced a couple of times, the idea that, um, you know, there the could have been someone or, or people, if you like, that, um, that these you know, she had children by some of the villages and they had children and so on. But, um, yeah, th there are these stories and um, there are other stories, for example, you know, what if they were actually aliens or they came through from some other dimensional realm, uh, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, I mean, one particular story um, that sort of is an intriguing one is the idea of the, this living in this sort of constant canopy of darkness one theory is what if they were like primitive humans that lived underground you know that spent most of their time predominantly living underground totally separate to the rest of us i mean you can find right. stories like this all around the world of um you know sort of cave dwellings underground civilizations you know legends of fantastic people that never surface and live deep below the earth maybe some of these kind of like the movie might... the descent yeah 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 exactly yeah something yeah. like that yeah i mean the, the descent sort of a perfect example yeah uh, also you know good place to talk about this is and kind of just briefly i know this is right up rob's alley is this kind of like you know we you think of bigfoot you don't normally think of the uk but apparently there are sightings of Bigfoot in the UK. Well, there are. And this is why, you know, I always have this sort of argument with people who say that Bigfoot is just an unknown ape. Because, you know, I mean, the UK, from the bottom of England to the top of Scotland, you know, it's we're actually talking less than a thousand miles. You know, yeah. the, pub the publication, excuse me, the population of the UK um, is like 60 million. So the idea that a colony or colonies of sort of seven to eight foot tall giant apes could roam around the UK less than a thousand miles long and with 60 million people packed in it, we would surely have caught or captured or found bodies of these. And yet people see them. And most of the witnesses, I mean, I've literally investigated dozens and dozens, possibly over a hundred cases, and most of the people come across entirely credible. But there's always some weird stuff associated with the Bigfoot reports in the UK. Like they're seen in uh, the vicinity, the direct vicinity of like ancient stone circles or ancient burial mounds, areas of historical or archaeological importance that the ancients perceived as being like magical areas. Um, you have a lot of reports of the British Bigfoot sort of appearing and vanishing in a flash of light. 
And this has given rise to the idea that, you know, what if these things, granted it's a controversial theory, what if they're sort of real, but they're sort of interdimensional, you know, they can literally hop from one realm to another. And as bizarre as that sounds, there are actually a lot of reports like that from the US where people have seen strange lights flitting around the woods at the same time Bigfoot's been seen. Um, There are reports of Bigfoot sort of, again, uh, vanishing in a flash of light, fading away, seemingly have the psychic ability to sort of stop people in their tracks and disable them to allow it to get out of there. Um, now, of course, most Bigfoot, well, not most Bigfoot researchers, because a lot of people who do recognize the weirder side to it, but a lot of Bigfoot investigators take the view that it's just a North American equivalent of an African gorilla. But to me, there's so many reports, and the fact that you get reports in the UK, that really fall out of that category and that sort of just reek of like high strangeness. They're just totally bizarre. And, you know, you either have to accept the cases or the person lied or hoaxed it or whatever. But when you sit down with these people, to me, they really don't come across like that. They're like, you know, can you just please tell me what I saw? Um, But as I said, there's always something weird going on with them. So that's why... You know, one of my big interests is cryptozoology, the study of unknown animals. But I think there are some of these creatures. I think cryptozoology should be split into two areas. One where you have what are clearly flesh and blood animals of unknown origin that are, you know, that do exist. And I would include stuff like possibly sea serpents, those kind of things where people see, you know, gigantic creatures in the oceans and some and some lake monster stories. But where you've got something like um a large ape-like creature that fades in and out of reality and it's and it's seen near yeah. Stonehenge, you know, or a stone circle, then to me there's, there's got to be something else go on that that's not just a natural animal, you know. What are your thoughts on that, Rob? Well, like that, like the You're moth- the cryptozoology guy here. <laughs> like the Mothman prophecies, that's obviously not... Yes. Like well, that's probably actually that's a perfect example because, you know, Mothman, people think of the name, you know, it, it sort of sounds to some people like a superhero type name, a Mothman, yeah. like Batman. But then when you read the stories, it's actually sort of more creepy. It's sort of this dark, shadowy thing that would turn up late at night with these glowing red eyes. And a number of researchers associated it with the collapse of the uh, Silver Bridge in the town and dozens of deaths and drownings in the car. Then in the same time frame that the Mothman was seen, you had a lot of UFO encounters and the men in black turning up, very creepy men in black, not like in the movies with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, but sort of like pale-faced ghouls almost, you know, coming out at night in black suits. And, and contact uh, T things going on, like injured cold, that, yeah, that it, whole thing. And, yep. and some of the people who'd seen Mothman and been visited by the men in black, they actually started to experience like poltergeist activity in the home and all sorts yes. of weird stuff. So in other words... For people who think Mothman is just an unknown animal, that's hard to reconcile when you've got like the men in black, UFOs, the bridge collapse, which people see as like like some, you know, doomed-like prophecy or something like that. And um, and then you, like poltergeist activity, just general weirdness, all focused on this little town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. To me, you cannot place Mothman in just the context of like a a giant bird or some sort of humanoid flying creature. There's, you know, there's all this associated weirdness going on with it. 
Right. Yeah. There's there's just so much strangeness going on that it just almost it almost just defies defies belief almost. You know. Yeah. One of the interesting yeah. theories that I thought about uh, uh, the Loch Ness monster mm-hmm. <laughs> was that uh, it's something that Alistair Crowley conjured up because he actually had a house there on Loch Ness. Well, it's funny you should say that, because I've actually got a book coming out next year on that very subject. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you must have been doing a bit of remote viewing then. <laughs> well, you know, Crowley's got to come up on this show at least every five yeah. episodes. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's obligatory at this point. The book about the Loch Ness Monster is a study of all the the paranormal aspects of the Loch Ness stories, the fact that yeah. some of the ones have, the creatures talk about them having long necks, others say they look more like a salamander or an eel. Um, and this sort of gets back to the idea from the old legends that the creatures were like shapeshifters. You know, they, they could different way, appear in different ways to different people. And you're right, I mean, Crowley had a house on the shore, a uh, Beleskin house. Um, Isn't that the one that Jimmy Page yeah, that's right. Jimmy Page owned it in the from the early 70s to the 90s, and um, there's a lot of UFO sightings and men in black and black cat sight, big large black cat sightings on the shore of Loch Ness. So, in other words, Loch Ness, you know, people think of Loch Ness monster. They're not. A lot of people aren't aware of all the other weirdness that's gone on. Like people try to photograph the. Loch Ness Monster, very often the cameras have jammed or the pictures have come out fogged. That's happened time and time again, you know, right. so, but in saying that, I mean, you know, you're, you're interested in cryptozoology, so you'll understand when I talk about, like, the Orang Pendek in Sumatra. Yeah, yeah. I actually think Orang Pendek is a legitimate, unknown ape of some sort, and I think it probably will be solved in the near future. You know, there's some really good, strong evidence for the existence of, um, of the Orang Pendic, but I don't think there's anything at all remotely supernatural about that. I think it's a genuinely unknown upright ape. You know, it's not like the size of Bigfoot, but to find a, a four-foot ape in Sumatra that walks on its walks like a man, that would be as amazing as it would be bizarre. You know, but but I don't think that has anything to do with UFOs or portals or anything. That's just an unknown animal. Coming on to some of the uh, conspiracy, like kind of the more modern day conspiracy theories, uh, one that uh, that I found really interesting, well, well, actually two, was was first of all, well, this idea that Hitler survived World War II. Mm. This is interesting stuff. You know, we actually had uh, Gerard Williams on the show last year, mm. and he wrote a book with uh, I think the guy's name was Simon Dunstan called Grey Wolf. And he talked yeah. about how uh, you know Hitler survived in Argentina, mm-hmm. and then there's also something that that I've looked into quite a lot, and this is the idea like that like John Lennon was actually assass- like assassinated by my, uh, by Mark David Chapman mm-hmm. as like more like a MK Ultra kind of thing. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean the the story of Adolf Hitler sort of surviving the Second World War. It's actually not a recent story. I mean, it's been around in various incarnations for years. But the reason why I decided to include a chapter on this in the book was because just a few years ago, the FBI actually declassified a file on this very subject. Um, Right in the immediate sort of post-war era, the FBI began to receive reports from intelligence sources and members of the public, sort of, you know, former military people, that they'd all heard rumors that, you know, the the uh, uh, 
Nicholas Suicide and Ava Brown, his girlfriend, that it was staged and they were essentially lookalikes and the real ones were smuggled off to South America in, in a submarine. Now, the, as I said, the FBI opened a file back then and that was just declassified a few years ago. You can now access the entire file at the FBI's website, The Vault, which is a really cool uh, website for formerly classified files. You can download them all for free in PDF. And, uh, and the Hitler file is a very extensive one. But, you know, as I said at the beginning, that you always want to be able to give the reader something new. And certainly there hadn't been much, publi you know, much uh, publicity given to this Hitler file, this declassified Hitler file. You know, a lot of it was sort of old regurgitated stuff before. So what I did was to um, pick out some of the more intriguing sections from the file and um, one of them for example talks about how the FBI had um, various informants uh, who, was, who were perceived as highly credible people themselves um, you know who worked in government and the military and who very heard very specific stories about a particular submarine taking Hitler and over Brown and possibly other high-ranking Nazis to South America and the FBI looked into all sorts of different theories about uh, were they taken to Argentina or was it Chile, um, various other countries cropped up as, as potential candidates. And, of course, it was never proven one way or another. But one of the more intriguing stories um, was that possibly um, when the whole issue of you know this, this taking place and when it went down, that, um, you know, it was not so much to um, continue the so-called, <laughs> laughingly called the master race, but uh, it was actually done, um, in essence, so Hitler could just start a new life in an anonymous fashion. You know, it wasn't like he was going to try and, you know, right. do like a fourth Reich or a fifth Reich or a sixth Reich, you know, depending on when things happen and, and whatever. It was really a case of him, um, you know, just fading away into obscurity, which I guess in many respects, that actually adds credence to the story, because if he did sort of, yes. you know, talk to a lot of people and went to meetings and that's planning setting it all up again, I think there'd be far more of a bigger story. I think it is more, if it did happen, it probably is, as some of the, the files suggest, that he just, he was given a new identity in a little town somewhere and just, you know, died in obscurity. Um, but what I find fascinating, more than anything else, is the fact that, you know, a file was created and these stories weren't dismissed. They were followed up very deeply and professionally and extensively by the FBI to see if they, you know, it actually was true that he'd survived the war. There was so much confusion, too, over his body, where the body was. There was so much confusion of, of whose body it actually was. The Soviets had information that they weren't sharing. Apparently... Stalin had never believed, or initially did not believe that Hitler had died. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and in the book, uh, or in, and in the documentary of the, the Grey Wolf, that you know they talk about, you know, Hitler just kind of just dying silently in like 1962, and everyone in his apparatus had pretty much just turned their back on him, and that. And it just it just kind of quietly just faded away, and it wasn't this whole thing about you know he was in he was in Antarctica with a fleet of UFOs and kind of steampunk technology and. <laughs> yeah, I actually wonder, you know, if he did survive, I, I sometimes wonder uh, if those more outlandish stories may have been created to try and make the whole thing look ridiculous. 
you know, right, you like, like the Admiral Bird thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I can easily understand how a situation might have developed, but if he did survive the war and people started, you know, look, nosing around and looking for, to see if it's true, somebody might have said, well, yeah, people are starting to look, so clearly the story's starting to leak out. How can we contain it? Well, we can't contain it, so what we'll do, we'll flood the whole field with a bunch of garbage and have them running around chasing, you know, saucers at the at the Arctic or whatever. So, in other words, you know, the the false story, the true story of a far more down-to-earth nature, possibly of him being smuggled to South America, gets hidden amongst all these stories about Nazi death rays and UFOs and underground bases at Antarctic. And they become the area that everybody focuses on. And then when people legitimately want to look into the issue of whether he survived the war, all this other garbage, if you like, comes along and and dominates and swamps the real stuff. And so it wouldn't right. surprise that hadn't been done deliberately for that purpose. Yeah, haven't you guys seen the movie Iron Sky, man? That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I found interesting in, in some of Gerard Williams' research was this little, and I actually played it on the show, was this clip that was from a BBC reporter that was kind of embedded in with the Soviet troops. And he's reporting just pretty much right when they come in and they finally get into the bunker. And they actually make this statement, or he gets, a, he gets from his source, which is uh, from one of the commanders, Soviet commanders there in Berlin, that uh, the body they found was actually his, uh, was actually a body double. Mm -hmm. I find that yeah, extremely I mean, fascinating. It wouldn't surprise, and it wouldn't surprise me too, if, you know, official agencies, possibly even in South America, proved or knew, secret knew that he did survive. It wouldn't surprise me if a decision was taken to keep that secret because it would be such a, you know, we, we thought we beat the war and, you know, Hitler killed himself, you know, in the Nazi thing all went down in ruins. To find that he, he actually lived on, that might be too much for a lot of people to bear. You know, he lived out in yeah. luxury in the fields of, you know, in some right. jungles of Peru or somewhere. I think I can understand why that might be hidden. People might, you know, somebody in the know might just say, we just cannot let people know that he that he survived. You know, it'll just be too much for him. Right. In the assassination of John Lennon, I, I find that fascinating because you 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 have that that impression that you know Lennon was just killed by kind of like a, of a crazed fan, mm -hmm. and that uh, it was just kind of like a random act of violence. But I, I I've actually have read a book um, by a guy named Fenton Bresler. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. goes into how you know Mark David Chapman may have actually been like a more of like a mind control assassin. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean this sort of goes back to the you know throughout the entire history of what have become known as so-called Manchurian candidates. You know the, the idea of somebody being subliminally uh, programmed, for want of a better term, to perform a specific task, which might be, you know, an assassination, and of course. Um, when it comes to the assassination of, of John Lennon, I mean, there are a lot of different theories, and it's kind of like with the, um, you know, the whole issue of the Roswell slides. There are a lot of different strands and leads which people can potentially put together, but we need to sort of determine to what extent. I mean, some researchers have made much of the fact that, you know, when John Lennon um, was shot in Dece on December the 8th, 1980, he was shot outside New York's Dakota Hotel.
Well, the the doorman at the the uh, excuse me, the concierge at the Dakota. His name was um, uh, Jose Sanchez Sanchez Podomo. He was actually formerly an agent of both Cuba's secret police and the CIA. Now, some researchers have said, see, conspiracy, you know. Um, others have said, well, you know, he was hired for the job because, you know, he, he knew how to look after himself. And sometimes you've got to be careful who comes into the hotel. So you can make that argument as well. There's also the fact that, um, for example, um, he spent uh, some time, Mark David Chapman uh, spent some time working with the YMCA. We know that at various times right. the MCA was infiltrated by the CIA, as bizarre as it sounds. Um, Chapman also was, you know, not a stranger to LSD. LSD played a major role in a lot of the early uh, and major mind control operations to see how LSD could affect people and how, you know, could it be harnessed as some way to, you know, control the mind. So, you know, you do have these sort of fragments of stories and there is also the fact that you know John Lennon was someone who um, people listened to by the millions, and he was you know really pushing for the U.S. military to get out of Vietnam, and a lot of people behind him. And um, we know through the Freedom Information Act that the FBI and MI5 in the in the UK, MI5 being the British equivalent to the FBI, both of them had files on John Lennon. Major, major concerns about how, you know, he was sort of becoming involved more in politics and campaigning and, and, and protesting. And um, he was seen as, you know, a major headache to the authorities. And so then you have the theory that somebody, perhaps in some shadow agency, decided, you know, somebody's going to get hired off the books and it'll look like a random nutcase um, when it was, you know, designed to get rid of someone who was becoming more and more infused by politics and things like this, and let's just get rid of him now, be done with it, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, you, you've got a lot of lot of weird strands. Like I said, you know, official surveillance of the man, phone bugging, um, the, the CIA guy as the doorman, you know, the YMCA, the LSD. This is why, you know, I'm not saying that it all is necessarily interlinked, but you can understand how and why the conspiracy theory has developed. So I think that's an important thing to note. In a lot of conspiracy theories, like with the Roswell slides, we need to be careful to determine, you know, is a thread really a thread or does it look like a thread? And maybe it is, but, we, you know, we need to, to figure it out one way or the other, hopefully before, you know, we sort of make outlandish claims and it backfires on us. What's the connection to the catcher and the rye? That's oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's the interesting thing. Um I mean, right after, you know, he shot um, Lennon. I mean, right after, uh, he just, uh, Chapman just sat down and opened up the catcher in the rye and started to read it. Um, for example, I mean, John Hinckley, who shot but didn't kill um, President Reagan, he owned a copy of the book as well. And there have been yeah. rumors, but uh, it's never been proven, but there have been rumors that Lee Harvey Oswald owned it as well. So, uh, and then, of course, it turns up in the, the Mel Gibson movie, Conspiracy Theory. Uh, right, right. So, in other words, you know, one of the theories that's been suggested by people in the conspiracy field is this whole issue of trigger words or phrases. Could it be that there was certain, you know, a particular book was chosen and certain people were subliminally hypnotized to 
pick up on a specific trigger word and you know when that's said to them down the phone or they read it in a book they become like a zombie you know they're just their mind's gone and they're just driven to perform one task and when it's done it's like they're coming out of anesthetic you know they're groggy and where am i and sitting around blankly and then suddenly you know that it either hits them what they've done or, it, or they're just in a state of confusion but that's sort of the the manchurian candidate kind of scenario yeah, I, mean, I know Adam Gorightly. He's written a lot about the whole catcher in the rye, all that, that so everything that's that's surrounding that. Um, you know, I find it interesting too. Some of the synchronicities, though. I mean, and this is you, know, you kind of just take it where it's worth what it for what it's worth. Like the weird synchronicities with the, with the, with the Lyndon's assassination. You know, the 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 Dakota building being the big link there. Uh, you know, where Rosemary's Baby was filmed. Yep. Right. And then, you know, the director of Rosemary's Babies, Roman Polanski, who was the husband of Sharon Tate, who was killed by the Manson family, who supposedly was influenced by the Beatles' White Album. And, yeah, <laughs> and no, then, and then almost, he's killed in front of the Dakota building. Yeah, you can almost sort of drive yourself crazy. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, the, that, that's one of the intriguing things, fascinating things, but also the frustrating things as well about conspiracy theories is they're never easy to resolve and they sort of spread right. here, there and everywhere. You know, it's like Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, it's not enough that, I mean, I don't think he actually was a patsy, but I don't think he acted alone. I think there was far more going on. Um, but then you find, you know, he was tied in with the Cubans. He was tied in, you know, um, he went to Russia. Um, he came back from Russia. <laughs> Um, you know, he was linked to various political organizations, ultra-right-wing groups, and um, in other words, even if he was a lone gunman, which I don't think he was, he was still someone who was linked with a lot of other controversial bodies and people as well. And, you know, that's something we find in so many of these cases, like whether it is Mark Chapman, um, you know, or, or whether it is Lee Harvey Oswald or whoever, there's there's always a bunch of other stuff going on with them as well. So do you think Oswald actually uh, did shoot at the president? Well, I'm not sure if he did or he didn't. I mean, we'll never really know, but I think, I think probably what happened, we know that Oswald, you know, was linked with people like Guy Bannister and David Ferry, and he conveniently, you know, he'd gone to Russia, and, and he was allowed just to come back into the U.S., you know, well, right, easily, yeah. yeah, and, you know, he was also mixing um, sometimes with sort of pro-Castro people, sometimes with anti-Castro people, as if he'd been sort of hired to sort of just stir things up, you know, um, so I, I think he was brought into it to be the fall guy, but I don't think he was an unwitting player. I think he was part of some conspiracy, and I thought he—I think he probably thought he was going to get away with it, like all the other guys would, and they'd be sort of, you know, um, shifted out to somewhere else, start a new life. Who knows what? Yeah. Uh, but then I think he realised, you know, he'd suddenly been at the last moment. He was all alone. You know, whoever he was going to be is, you know, pickup person never turned up. There was just silence, and then he went the penny dropped, so to speak, and he realized, you know, it's all going to be on me. And that's when he sort of fled to the theater, you know, got arrested. And then the next uh, the next day, excuse me, two days later, you know, he's shot dead by Jack Ruby, um, who also had uh, links with the mob. 
So, in other words, it's like ensuring that he's portrayed as a lone gunman, and before he can have his say about what he may have known, he's dead. You know, I, I don't yeah. think that's coincidence. I think he was he was deliberately picked to be the person. He's going to be the one who it's all going to come down on, and we'll just you know get the guys in here with the fall guy, and we'll get rid of him before he can say anything. And I think that's literally what happened. Let me ask you, Nick, um, on the subject of the Kennedy assassination, what do you think of the confession of E. Howard Hunt? Well, yeah, I mean, well, as far as Hunt's con uh, confession is concerned, I mean, it's interesting in the sense that it's just like another, <laughs> it's unfortunately, frustratingly, it's like a another tier, another level of the conspiracy. The, the problem is, you know, that, some of the stories, like Hunt's, they, they you know they conflict with other stories where they, cl they clearly cannot be all correct. But then, on the other hand, we have okay, that sounds credible. Um, so my my view, unfortunately, not to sort of avoid answering the question, I just don't know. But you know, the the problem is there are so many different strands, and when you sort of see, you know, you have um, Hunt's story, then you've got sort of the Cuban theory. You've got the idea, um, you know, pro-Castro or anti-Castro people, uh, the idea that um, Oswald was sent to Russia and got turned by the KGB, and in other words, he was, you know, an assassin of the KGB who wanted Kennedy gone. Then you've even got more bizarre theories like, you know, he's going to blow the whistle on the UFO subject and things like this. I, I just don't know. I mean, you know, the... Unfortunately, why it gets confusing, you can make a case out of a lot of these stories, but um, yeah. clearly they, the, the only way they could all be sort of correct, and, and I do think this is quite plausible, is the idea that there could have been people in numerous agencies or organizations that wanted him gone, and in a unique and hardly ever seen situation, they all got together. Not necessarily where, you know, the high-ups in the Pentagon are going to sit down with the Mafia. Not like that. But there could be some sort of rogue, very powerful general in the Pentagon who vehemently was against um, Kennedy's situation, your, or his viewpoint on the Vietnam War. Now, he has a contact, let's say, who can get him in touch with somebody in the mob. Um, and that person in the mob can he can find a way to hire off-the-books assassins, you know, who can get in and get out quickly and no one will ever know who they are. And possibly, you know, one of the people who's involved in, in getting the person in and out, maybe it's somebody in, the, in Cuba. And so, in other words, we could have this unique situation where you have almost like a cabal of people all getting together, all having a reason to get rid of Kennedy. And... Nobody's really sort of calling the shots, but they all want him gone, and so everybody's yeah. sort of partly responsible. But it's not an official agency doing it. It's certain people in positions of power in in, in law enforcement, in in government, but in the mob, and you know, and in Cuba, and they all briefly sit around a table and say, "Okay, it's got to be done," you know, that kind of thing. And that would why we have all these strands of different agencies in the story and departments so. right one thing i found interesting from uh hunt's confession was this uh he mentions a guy named cord meyer mm -hmm. as being the pretty much like the ringleader or the guy who set it up the interesting thing about cord meyer is is that jfk slept with cord meyer's wife 
So it could have just come down to something just completely basically personal. Well, there's actually um, a very good novel based around all that. Um, I actually got it, and I forget what the name of it now, but it's uh, it's an English novel published about 15 years ago. I won't give the plot away, but it, it's essentially uh, like a disgruntled assassin um, who finds out that um, his wife has slept with the president, uh, with Kennedy, and... Um, yeah. And then the story, I said I won't give away the, uh, I think it's called Dead Shot or something like that. But um, but it's a really good book. It's a cool story. You know, it sort of takes it, it's a conspiracy, but it's, you know, it's it's a conspiracy at a personal level rather than as most people think it, you know, it's the KGB, it's the Russians or it's whoever, you know. But in this case, it's, it's a jealous husband. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Which would be kind of it, ironic if it was, but it, it would still be fascinating as yeah. well. We we would think it was like this big, deep government conspiracy, <laughs> and it had all these motives, and it and it could have just come. Well, it could have still been that, but they could have yeah. just found the right guy and just say, "Hey, yeah. you know, JFK slept with his wife. He'll kill him." Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and then you got but, like you know, controversial ones like Bonar Manager, um, who put this theory forward that you know Oswald was the main shooter, but then. The uh, Secret Service car behind yeah, uh, yeah. this car, you know, the Secret Service agent slipped and actually he put a bullet in Kennedy's head as well. I mean, it's an yeah, interesting it an theory. Yeah, yeah, but I just find it a little bit too implausible. The idea that two totally unconnected people within a millisecond of each other could have both shot the president in the head from different perspectives, <laughs> one deliberately, one by accident. I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but it would be such a million to one thing, you know, two people make a headshot and they have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Well, in the time that we got left, because Luke's getting restless here, <laughs> but uh, I do want to talk a little about something that happened just recently and, and, and only a year ago, and that's the MH370 disappearance. Uh-huh. Yeah, what, what do you think happened to that, and do you think it's ever going to be found? Well, uh, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think... One reason, more than any other, why that's become, MH370 has become, you know, the biggest sort of most baffling conspiracy of the last couple of years, is it comes down to one thing, I think, the fact that, you know, a massive plane like a Boeing 777 can actually vanish from the skies, from radar, from everything, and not be found, and no wreckage found, no telltale bodies floating to the surface or wreckage floating, nothing. For all intents and right. purposes, it's just gone. And we don't really think in our world today that can happen you know you, we hear all about surveillance of cell phones and satellites you know spy satellites and everything else and yet we can't find you know a boeing triple seven um so so in other words before we sort of get to the theories i think that's why it's sort of endured and captured so much interest purely because it's pretty much unheard of for a plane just to vanish and still not to be found of that sort of sheer size and scale in the 21st century. But, um, I mean, there are a lot of interesting theories that have surfaced for, um, you know, what happened to it. A, a very strange one that didn't really get that much coverage, but it's sort of an intriguing one. Um, it's, I, I don't think it surfaced in the UK, but it was certainly um, publicized quite widely in the mainstream UK media, was the idea that there was some form of advanced technology um, 
on board the plane. Now, this was not sort of explained to what it was, but um, a conspiracy researcher named Mike Adams had looked into this angle and believed the um, whatever this technology was, it could actually bring aircraft down out of the sky. And um, so his theory was that somebody or some agency or body was determined to get their hands on whatever that technological device was that could bring down aircraft in a very strange fashion, you know, literally pull them from the sky. And so the idea was that somebody hijacked the plane, landed it somewhere purely with the purpose of, of recovering whatever this technology was on the plane. Now... Yeah. Then you have other stories about um, the plane landing on, uh, like, for example, Diego Garcia and the Andaman Islands. Um, there are also stories about the plane being flown to uh, China's Taklamakan Desert um, for reasons unknown, but it was suggested because, you know, there are a lot of Chinese passengers on board. And, again, this sort of tied in with this theory of was there something in the hold you know, like a some sort of advanced technological device. But, um, you know, then there are a lot of stories about whether somebody could have hijacked it, hijacked it and landed it on an island with a view to sort of weaponizing the plane, you know, converting it into essentially like just stocked with explosives and fly it again into a building. But, um, you know, I mean, that's just sort of the you know, the the tip of the iceberg, there's sort of 10, 12 theories that have been put forward and you know, everything from just weather problems and, you know, crashed where we, places weren't looking and, as I said, to being taken over by terrorists and landed on an island and this weird device. I mean, as I said, that's, that's just literally the tip of the iceberg. Right, yeah. It's, it's such a bizarre story that they could not find a plane that is that big. It just, it's just so strange. Yeah, and that's why, you know, some researchers think it literally was landed, you know, and um, maybe the passengers are still held somewhere. You know, there's, that would be sort of very bizarre if that is the case. There's stories about it, you know, sort of being deliberately flown below radar and things like this. And, um, I mean, who knows? I mean, all we can say for sure is that there's no doubt the conspiracy theory is going to endure, and there's no doubt that almost in a unique situation all the evidence is gone There's, we just don't have even a nut or a bolt you know or a shoe that's floated to the sea or anything we've got absolutely nothing at all you know right and the longer that it stays gone the longer it's, it's gonna just it, the more conspiracy theories will come up about it because people just don't know and they want to fill in the gaps it's weird it, it, it the whole thing reminds me a little bit of the plot of lost Oh, yeah, it is a bit, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, yeah. it's actually not that different, yeah. But, um, well, you know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, but I think, um, and I think also one of the reasons why the conspiracy theory has developed, and I, and I actually do think there is a conspiracy. I don't think it was just a case that the plane plunged into the ocean and we've been looking in the wrong place. I think somewhere along the line there was a conspiracy, but I think it develops because you know, because of like the tragic events like 9-11, when we know that, you know, there was a conspiracy and and planes were, you know, deliberately crashed into buildings. So today, whenever we're, an airliner goes down, say 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people's instant thought might have been, you know, just a horrible, terrible accident. Today, I think we instantly swing into that mode of, 
uh oh, you know, what brought the plane the plane down, who brought it brought it down, rather than right. just in pilot error. We automatically think, you know, it was a conspiracy. It doesn't mean it wasn't, because I think with M H three seventy it was. Um but it sort of demonstrates the world we're in where there's so many uncertainties that it's no wonder we you know, we we do latch onto the conspiracy theory ideas. But the time that we have left, Nick, I want to talk a little bit about you know what you're working on now and what's uh, kind of like what's next for you, and also where everybody can move and uh, buy the book as well. Okay, well, the book that's out right now, is Secret History, um, it's available from Visible Ink Press, and you can get it off the shelves in Barnes and Noble or from Amazon and other uh, good uh, book selling stores. Uh, probably a few bad ones as well. <laughs> and um, you can uh, people can reach me. I've got a blog. Uh, if you just type in Nick Redfern World of Whatever, that'll uh, flag you the address. Uh, people can reach me at Facebook or Twitter. Um, as far as what I've got going on the rest of the year, I've, actually, I've got two books out in September, two cryptozoology books. Um, one's called The Bigfoot Book, and it's actually published by Visible Ink Press, so it'll look exactly in style the same one as Secret History. It'll be a 400-page book, 150,000 words. It'll be an A to Z, so like A for Abominable Snowman, Y for Yeti, that kind um O for Orang Pendek, and but he also got sections on like um, invisibility and Bigfoot, UFOs and Bigfoot, um, ancient sightings of Bigfoot, that kind of thing. And coincidentally, in, also in September, I've got a Chupacabra book out with Llewellyn books. Um, yes. I've been on a lot of expeditions to Puerto Rico, uh, Mexico, and all around the U.S. looking for the Chupacabra, and. This one's called Chupacabra Road Trip, and as you probably tell from the title, <laughs> it's like a it's like a road trip of me sort of running around Puerto Rico and you know and looking for the Chupacabra and in the morning, then stopping off for a margarita and then carrying on looking for the Chupacabra. So it's sort of like a you know like I said a, a road trip beats a, a monster hunt kind of situation, and it covers all the sort of ten years of expeditions I've been on to Puerto Rico. Uh, others, like I said, in Mexico and um, and the U.S. And it's sort of it's as much about sort of a hunt for the chupacabra as it is some of the bizarre and stranger and sort of funny and weird situations I found myself in running around Puerto Rico and Mexico and some few hazardous situations as well. So. Right. You should. I mean, you live in Texas, so you should have a pet chupacabra. You know, by now. <laughs> I ought to really, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Nick, thank you so much. <laughs> right. Rob, is there anything that you want to add? Uh, well, other than uh, I started reading the book this past week, about a third way through it. I, I love the format. No, oh, thanks. It's really comprehensive without being really overwhelming. Well, I tried to make it so, you know, each chapter was long enough and detailed enough to tell everybody the important data, but equally not to where... You know, I think one of the problems sometimes with conspiracies, when you get flooded with so much data, it almost becomes impossible to understand them unless it's like a full-length book kind of thing, you know. Right. No, yeah. it's, yeah, I think you did a great job balancing that. Oh, thanks. When you get the huge Bigfoot uh, book out, I'd love to have you back on. I'll just turn that one over to Rob. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's his thing, man. Is the All right, well, they send copies out to you, so. Luke, anything for you, Dad? Dad? Uh... Uh, peace, chicken grease. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a profundity that you got to get from Luke. Okay. 
I'm, all I can think of is Taco Bell right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, uh, stay on the line for a sec. We're going to close out this segment, but we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. <laughs> I don't. That was all. That was my final thought on the game. I have. I have no further. <laughs> no. Conspiranormal joined in process. <laughs> Angry combined with angry video game nerd. <laughs> so, 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 Luke, what did you get out of uh, the Nick Redford interview besides Taco Bell? terrible, ter- terrible tattoos <laughs> and uh, whatever else it was that you were doing? <laughs> I mean, I can, I, I got to listen and do something at the same time. Like, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm listening, and I'm like, okay, well, I could do something else too. You know, usually it's draw pictures or something, draw, draw dark. <laughs> Draw dirty pictures. <laughs> Just that ADD. <laughs> but, no, I'm, um, I, you know, you know me, man. I do like the history stuff. I like the, uh, uh, I like the stuff he was talking about to do with the museum and the raids and all that. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are under the opinion that, uh, uh, Islamic radicals are the ones that were selective about which, uh, museum content they destroyed. Right, you know, destroying all the idols or whatever because it offends them and, and their beliefs nowadays. So, uh, yeah, I find that whole thing interesting too. About you know, R.J. von Breening brought that up too about the museum stuff last week. You know, our Jewish radical guest that we had on. <laughs> I didn't call him a Jewish <laughs> radical. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know, man. My brain was just <laughs> completely swamped. <laughs> I don't remember what I did. I must. Have... I think you're still fried from the the Grateful Dead concert last night. No, I, I only smoked a couple joints, man. <laughs> well, at least he admits it. <laughs> well, is someone gonna raid us now? Yeah. Uh, well, we'll make this brief because I know Luke's got to go get some food. In his I do want to add so. a little little disclaimer. Okay. Um, during the interview, I, I googled hyperchronic anemia, looking for pictures of little green children. So did I. So uh-huh. Yeah, there's uh-huh. there's no pictures on the internet that you want to see. So, <laughs> just to everyone out there listening, don't bother. It, it, okay. It was pretty horrific. Yeah, there was like one that was just like it was like look like, 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 like frog baby or something <laughs> that, that Luke was showing me in the middle of the of the show. That's and... what got me into looking at the, the tattoos because I see people that were tattooing themselves green. Yeah, and then that's what. How would somebody do that? Why would somebody get some of the tats that I showed? Yeah, you? that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what was the one with like a Tupac as a unicorn? Was was one yeah, of them? Uh, <laughs> it was a it was a Tupac centaur. <laughs> Tupac's face and a unicorn body. Oh yeah, because and he had the horn on top. Yeah, that's why he was a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Michael Jackson Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one was <laughs> Michael Jackson. A, a very poor rendition of Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson holding a little kid. Is yeah. that, why would someone get that tattooed on their arm? I just love Michael Jackson so much. What he meant. Yeah, I, I don't think that came from someone who who loves him and is a fan. That's a, very, that's that's a pretty derogatory that... tattoo. You get some well, again. Like, you just were you trying to make a statement or something, you know? It's, it's a frat bro that just like instantly regretted it the next morning. <laughs> oh man, you know what would be awesome? Tattoo Michael Jackson. <laughs> He's like holding the kid, dude. Tattoo him on my arm, bro. But, but my, one of my favorites that I showed you was the was a woman eating a baby. Like, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was that all about? 
That's probably somebody that's in Code Hanger Abortion, right? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. I'm going to look up Code Hanger Abortion Are those later. other... It's, it's those... going to be one of the... Like the singer's tattoo. <laughs> Are those other ones that you that, that you listen to where they're like, kind of like dismember women and all that kinds of stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, there seems to be like a niche for women hatred in my music. <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't get that. Here we are laughing a about it. As a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, guys, join us next time. We're gonna we're gonna be taking a little bit of a break here, but we're gonna be back in about like I believe like a week and a half. We got a special guest coming on, someone that was supposed to have been on back in February, but uh, something happened. But I'm not gonna say who it is. But let's just say that. Uh, other planetary other planetary forces are possibly involved. And then after that, we've got Dr. Future and Chris Pinto coming on to talk about their movie about the Georgia Guidestones that they've just, that they're releasing. I'm super stoked about that. There's going to be some interesting information. Did, did you already pre-order our, uh, our Krevlon helmets? Krevlon helmets? Yeah, I did. Okay. They're coming in. Sweet. They're coming in. So, you know, we won't get those transmissions from the uh, yeah, Illuminati. I, I don't or want whatever. any of those RF frequencies. Yeah. Like being yeah. trying to. Anyway, go ahead. I, I pretty much got most of the shows uh, scheduled. Um, I've also got Doc Marquis coming up back on in, in September. Oh. He's going to talk to us about. We're going to talk some more about the Illuminati cards and just what he thinks is going on. It's being a former member of the Illuminati and all that. All right. All that good stuff. That's one that. Uh, uh, Rob has not experienced that one yet, so he, he that'll, be, that'll be interesting. <laughs> so, anyway, guys, uh, as always, uh, you guys can, there's many places to listen. It's paranormal.podomatic.com. There's um, also ipbnfm.com, and there's the Fringe Radio Network. And you guys can hear all of Luke's uh, adorable antics on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> I'm sure they can't wait. Take us out, Luke. Once you dub, fake dubstep or beatbox us out. Oh, no. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> you know how dumb I sound. <laughs> well, on that note, guys, thanks for joining us on Conspiracy Normal. And we'll be back in a couple weeks on Conspiracy Normal. Did you say anything, Rob? <laughs> <laughs>
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.